It's the main course on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with my partner in crime, Patrick Martins. And we have a really uh, unusual and interesting show today. We're going to be exploring the issues around hydrofracking, otherwise known as hydraulic fracturing, which is a method of extracting natural gas from the Marcellus Shale Fields, a big part of upstate New York and a big part of our agricultural uh, region in this state. <clears throat> and um, in the first, before we do that, though, we'll be chatting a little bit with um, with just one another, talking about uh, my recent trip to the Gulf Coast. I just came back from uh, Pensacola, Florida, where I had the opportunity to observe that they don't have tar balls yet on the beach, but they're waiting, and they have the booms everywhere. And um, their businesses. What's are, a boom? Um, they're these, you know, those uh, those sort of fabric sausages that they lay for miles and miles and miles along the coastline to trap the oil before it actually hits the shore. Mm-hmm. And the reason they do that there is not only because the beaches are this pristine white sand and unbelievably beautiful, but also because there's a lot of wildlife nesting uh, along the shores of Pensacola and Pensacola Beach. So um, the idea is to try to keep the oil away from those uh, nesting areas, like for brown pelicans and so forth. Um, you know, it was you would never really have known that there was anything wrong, actually, um, <clears throat> looking at Pensacola. It was kind of interesting. Uh, you know, business as usual, uh, bars were full, um, people were playing in the water, which I personally didn't really feel like doing. Um but something must be down. Business is down about 80% compared to the norm uh, at this time of year. And who knew that people would actually go to Florida in the summer, but apparently they really do. And um, I must say the weather was lovely. We had a great time. And, um, you know, we instituted a new national sport, which uh, we conducted Olympic trials for this weekend, which is uh, power drinking. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we involved quite a few people in those trials, and many of us will be making it to the next round of trials. <laughs> Good. I'm sure you'll medal. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I probably will. <laughs> um, so you can't brag. Like, they don't really know. I was talking to Kim Severson the other day, one of the food writers for the New York Times, and she's like, she's not sure the effect it's going to have. I mean, it might have no effect, right, on the, uh, on the food supply. I mean, it's not... You know, the environmentalists always are like, wow, it's over, everything's a disaster, but it's not necessarily... Well, there was, it was interesting because on TV, they ran a lot of uh, one and one and a half minute long spots, um, you know, touting the uh, Florida's seafood industry, you know, and saying there's nothing wrong with it and you can feel safe in eating this food and it's not, you know, it's not being, it's not coming from waters that have been contaminated. But the fact is, is I don't think they really have any way of measuring what the environmental impact is of, um, of the dispersant uh, that they have been using on the oil. It's not just a matter of the oil itself. It's a matter of the chemicals that they have used to break that oil up into tiny little droplets, which is something that I, not being a science, don't understand. It seems to me it would have been a lot easier to go out there with a skimmer and pick up a slick than it is to have these everything dispersed into tiny droplets, which then fall to the floor of the of the ocean, of the Gulf, mm-hmm. and then contaminate all of the shrimp beds and oyster beds and so forth. So... There was a lot there that <clears throat> remains to be explained, in my opinion, and um, and I think that um, I think it'll be a long time before we actually see what the impact is. Um, nobody really wants to talk. There's no. They haven't conducted any trials, any long-term trials on the effects of these dispersants on the food chain. So they won't even release they, what's in it. Yeah, they won't. They That's don't want to tell scumbag. You. That is douchebaggery. Yeah, that is absolute. 
wrong side of history. And I and I really think, I mean, I've read the Bible recently. I mean, by Bible, biblical definitions, those people are going to go to hell. I well, mean, by, by literally, if you read religious texts, if we abide by that, that's what happens to people that do stuff like that, who are probably, now you say they don't relinquish those things because it's proprietary. That's what they call it, proprietary information. Because why? They're worried that Shell Oil is going to copy their... <laughs> their disaster their ingredients <laughs> for for saving a disaster is that what it is it's I a really business decision it's it's certainly a business decision i think oh, it's really because guys are scumbags. Uh, you know i think it really is more about just kind of concealing as much as possible from the you know public scrutiny why because what if is actually once is that is on. once that happens they have to reveal and disclose all things they 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 should be taken over by the government you know, and by the way, I do respect BP for coming out with a claims ad campaign, you know, which I think Obama probably, if it had been the Bush administration, there would have been no pressure on those. That oh, we company. would have been paying BP to clean up the disaster. Yeah. So, you know, I admire that. But, you know, I mean, it's uh, they, they probably, you know, could have done more at the beginning stages to, you know, they could have done more to avoid the disaster altogether. But if they're not revealing what is in that you know whatever formula that's that's unacceptable you have to tell people what's in it that should be on the front page of their website you know like it or not it's a bit it's a big situation i don't know i find that absolutely egregious that they you know that they would get to leave open it. the door that it could be you know cancer causing or whatever well they don't actually know I mean, they, they actually do not know. They have no scientific long-term studies on the effects on humans or animals of this, of this chemical. Mm. All they know is that it turns oil from a slick into little micro droplets, which then sink to the bottom of the, of the gulf. So then, you know, problem solved <laughs> as far as they're concerned because then you, you don't have a big slick. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's not washing up onto the marshlands or the coastline. It's not polluting the beaches. It's, you know, it's just this sea of gunk down below where you can't see it out of sight, out of mind, which mm-hmm. is kind of how the United States operates in general about stuff, um, environmental disasters of almost any kind. Yeah. You know, well, um, on a lighter note, before we get into our th- movie, uh, before we get into our show, I saw the movie Shutter Island, which I liked. I thought it was a very good uh, movie about mental illness. I worked in the highest security lockup ward in the state of New York in Poughkeepsie. You did? Yep. Which Why? was uh, in college. It was originally uh, imagined Poughkeepsie was as a city to house all severe mental patients for the whole nation. You're making this up. Nope, that they would all be carted over there. It never ended up happening, but it is a big, big, big mental institution city for the state of New York. Yeah, and I went there, and there was actually a riot that broke out in the lockup ward while I was there, and now... Anyway, for years after, no other students were allowed since that was like a real dangerous thing. And I always remember walking in there and the first thing my, you know, psychologist mentor told me was like, become friends with the guards. Yeah. In a riot, those guards are going to have to make choices and you better hope that they come and drag your ass out of there because if not, you know, you could die. A riot is a riot. And it happens all the time. And and what I liked about the movie is that it, it didn't, of course, it was Hollywood, but it, it didn't escape the fact that some mental illness is actually incurable. 
Sure. You know, it's not like Hollywood where, you know, you get some psychologist talking to you and then all of a sudden you're better. I mean, some people are I don't just think that ever up. happens. Yeah. In fact, I have friends in the field of psychiatry who claim that there's absolutely, when somebody is really truly mentally ill, there's really nothing that they you could do about it, including the drugs. Yeah. I mean, he's, you know, he became totally discouraged about the entire profession. He thought talk therapy was a waste of time. He thought the drugs were a sham. Yeah. And then... Um, yeah, so, and then, um, well, anyway, so that was one thing. I did like that movie, Shutter Island. We got it on pay-per-view. Then um, we're going to talk a little bit about the BP thing. We're going to talk about, what are the states that we're covering today? We're covering New York, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Pittsburgh's going to be a big... Yeah, Pittsburgh mm-hmm. is a big player, um, New York, and to a certain extent, New Jersey. The Mar- what we're going to be talking about are the Marcellus Shale Fields, yeah. which is the energy industry's newest, well, not that new, but brightest hope for um, an alternative to coal-fired plants. Mm-hmm. And um, what I, the reason I wanted to bring this issue into, um, into the main course is that uh, all of this has a big impact on the agriculture of the Northeast. Mm-hmm. Because or maybe it doesn't. Well, or maybe it doesn't. I personally think it probably does because a lot of acreage is getting leased out to these um, to the big oil players, Exxon, uh, Royal Dutch Shell, Halliburton. They're all digging in there, and uh, and they're all going to be making a lot of money off of this. I personally am a big believer that if there was active, viable farmland, and you know, small farmer consortia selling their products into the cities, it wouldn't be an option to. Uh, well, if farmers were yeah, exactly, if I mean that's what we're going to talk about with one of our guests, David Haight. Yeah, why Haidt, aren't there more groups is, helping family farms sell their yeah. food into market? Well, he was. We particularly when we were talking yesterday in sort of the pre-interview, we were um, we particularly talked about the dairy industry because there used to be so much dairy in northern and western uh, New York State, and um, and it is because the dairy industry has been so depressed over the last couple of years. They are one of the largest groups that are leasing out or outright selling their land mm-hmm. to these oil concerns. So um, that's something we can. Do- and because David is from the American Farmland Trust, so very interesting. Their mission is to save American farmland. I was. From- Friends with Ann Yonkers for a number, you know, of years, and she was, I think, one of the founders, or she ran their Washington D.C. division. Cool. Well, we should take a break, Wait. and then I'll say one last thing. I, I was watching Meet the Press today. Were you? And first of all, I, I, I am so sad that that guy passed away. The guy that used to be the host of it, um, he was brilliant, and he was such a strong. Oh, interview. you mean Tim Russert? Yeah. What yeah. a guy! This guy Gregory just doesn't have the balls to to stand up to yeah. to, to these people. And I just want to say, you know, the health care bill saves the lives and destinies of, and, 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 and literally the lives of millions of Americans to just view it as a failed policy because it cost us. You know, I see all these people just being like, oh, you know how much that cost us? It bankrupt states. It ba- it's not about a, a, a pure dollar value. It's about ensuring millions of people that couldn't afford it. You know, and, 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 and to just bring it down to an economic thing, you know, I I think uh, Americans should be proud of the fact that we passed a health care system, agree. not embarrassed and, and, and viewing it as a failed democratic policy that cost taxpayers millions. Also, 
if they were true struggling people telling me about this, all these senators are multimillionaires. So I don't buy it that they have the finger <laughs> of the pulse off on anyone. They certainly do. And not. then the other thing is, aren't we fighting two very expensive wars that were launched by the Republicans? So I, ju- I don't know. It just seems like to bring things down to a dollar value doesn't help them because I think they probably cost the taxpayer a lot more money than the things and also they're all about tax cuts anyway so it's not a money thing just like it wasn't a family value thing before that yeah it's so about true. they want to keep their money personally that's right so, well i, I mean know. i don't know if it's that simple but anyway before we take our quick break and and then come back with one of our first guests i just want to do our little sponsor drop because today we are sponsored by um the wallace edwards company And until now, if you wanted the world-class flavor of European dry-cured ham, you bought prosciutto from Italy, serrano from Spain, or Westphalian ham from Germany. You also paid an ultra-premium price that goes with prestigious reputation and international shipping costs. Today, if you want one of the world's finest dry-cured hams, you have another better option, Suriano hams from the Edwards Family Smokehouses in Surrey, Virginia. Their delectable Suriano hams are all-natural, made only from purebred six-spotted Berkshire hogs, This rare breed is 100% pasture-raised to produce a perfectly marbled meat with just the right amount of internal fat to produce a rich and distinctive flavor. For more information on Edwards Ham and Surrey Farms, visit www.surreyfarms.com, S-U-R-R-Y farms.com. And that is true. Their Suriano ham is absolutely too it's absolutely die for. Can we say it? Are we allowed as a sustainable food movement rather than infighting to say that the enemies of the sustainable food world are companies like Smithfield and Purdue? Yeah. The arch enemies. Now that being said, they're also the possibility for change and the solution. Well, I, I think but that... But I, I don't want to be fighting some foie gras producer in New Jersey who's raising 11 ducks, yeah. you know, and waging a war on that guy <laughs> while Purdue and Smithfield are the enemies. Right. Well, while they get a free pass on, envir- on, on extensive yeah. and... And we're going to... And I don't want Paul cons- McCartney's vegetarian movement to stop the discourse on the fact that millions of Americans eat millions of pounds of meat a day. Yeah. And we have to get Smithfield and Purdue to change their ways. That's the goal. And there's it's too not much about infighting with them. Us the against them. It's about making us all work together. And yeah. I think it's possible to move the needle a little bit in the direction we want with the big uh, commodity conglomerate companies like Purdue and Tyson. <clears throat> and uh, and yeah, and, and reading the Bible and <laughs> yeah. seeing what the Bible says because a lot of those people are religious, which I respect. So they should read the Bible and find out what happens to people that makes animals suffer. You are on a roll today. Listen, I'm sorry. That's the Bible, right? If you're that's looking the big very Jesu- Je- Jesus-like, actually, Patrick. If that is religion, if people are religious, then abide by the religion. You can't pick where or not. Well, for money, I can escape religion. But I, as long as I go to church on Sundays, it's okay. If you make animals suffer unnecessarily and your profits are such that you are being gluttonous and not thinking about the animals on whose backs you're making your profits, read the Bible. The Bible's very clear about what happens to people like that. And if you don't suffer in this lifetime, you'll suffer in the next, if the Bible's right. Now, maybe the Bible's wrong, and then if those people don't believe in it, I'm sure they're not worried. But if they do, they should be. Well, on that note, let's take like a one-minute break and come back with Wes Gillingham from the Catskill Mountain. Keep if you lose it, would you ever feel ashamed? And I will only tell you one more time than you know that I'm never gonna tell you again. 
so uh, we're back on the main course uh, at Roberta's. I'm here with Katie Kiefer. I'm Patrick Martins. We have two Scottish Terriers in the uh, thing. And maybe, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound so radical. I have an idea. If a father or mother are going to be embarrassed to show up to the show and tell parents, you know, this is what my parent does <laughs> in their kindergarten. If they are so embarrassed about what they do, to not be able to come to a show and tell, that's also religious. Because kids kind of have this innate sense of what's right and what's wrong. If you can't show up to show and tell, you're probably With doing something conscience. wrong. Yeah. yeah. If you were too nervous and you're like, oh, I was sick that day. That's, as, as Anne says, great word, douchebaggery. That is absolutely <laughs> deeply unacceptable. So show and tell, what do you really do? Well, I think that they, anybody who's involved in an industry that where they make big money and, and possibly produce big quantities of food Billions for people are, of dollars. are drinking their own Kool-Aid and they would never think that there was anything wrong with it. We would just want to add one thing about uh, the Corexit, which is the dispersant that's been used in the... In the Corexit. Uh, yeah, isn't that great? Going, whoever the came with that is They did actually have to release those ingredients, but um, it took a long time for them to correct uh, it to, and then there was uh, there has been quite a bit of controversy about it but it's certainly what about very toxic. cancer it yeah that would right. have been a word. <laughs> anyway our guest today is wes gillingham from the catskill mountain keeper organization hey wes how you doing good how you doing today great so wes i i got interested in the whole business of hydraulic fracturing otherwise known as hydrofracking. i saw a few articles about it um i have friends up in the catskills and uh, i don't know how i got onto your mailing list but i've been you know getting your publications on a regular basis for the last few months and so eventually i was sufficiently moved uh to want to call in and and uh find out exactly what catskill mountain keeper is uh doing and what what the status of um hydraulic fracturing is up there in the Catskills and why you guys are so concerned about it? Well, first and foremost, I mean, this the, the biggest thing about this whole new technology that they've developed in the Barnett Shale enables them to go after what's called source rocks. So you're not talking about the little pocket of gas here and then you go over to the next county and there's a little pocket of gas. You're talking about a grid work across the whole landscape. And in this case, when you're talking about the Marcellus Shale, you're talking about from the Catskills all the way across the southern tier of New York and all the way down to West Virginia, right. which just so happens to be, if you think about it, where some of the last best wild places, other than New England, the last wild places are in, in, the, in America, in the east. And it's also... A, where a bulk of agriculture happens. Um, well, in the explain well. what the Catskill Mountain Keepers is and its mission before we get into this, just so we understand why you're speaking on this subject. Um, are you into keeping wildlife as wildlife? Or are you into keeping farmland as farmland? Or what exactly is the mission of the Catskill Mountain Keeper Association? Well, we're into keeping the Catskill Mountains as a vibrant place to live and uh, make a living and have healthy communities to live in. So it's an advocacy organization. We look at the six counties of the Catskill region. Most people don't realize about the Catskills. Everybody thinks of the old um, resort era of the mm -hmm. Catskills, but there's a, a lot of agriculture and there's a lot of wild areas left in the Catskills. Is um, the Borscht Belt part of the Catskills? 
Yeah, that's when they talk about the Borscht Belt, they're talking about Sullivan County. That's actually where our office is. We're right in, in the Borscht Belt. But it's, um, that's the southern part of the Catskills. As you go north from there, you're talking about some of the largest wilderness areas east of the Mississippi. Well, all of that area up there, I mean, my brother has a place up in uh, Tannersville, and that whole area was where the Hudson River School painters um, you know, did their thing, and that and it is an incredible area. That's where the Catterskill Clove is, and wonderful walks through the woods and through the mountains up there. So it's really, it's pretty spectacular. How would it be ruined by horizontal drilling? Now, is that the same as hydrofracking, uh, or it's not completely interchangeable? But would it ruin the landscape? I mean, would it, or, or would it ruin little parts of it, or the whole thing? Well, I, that's one of the biggest issues is the cumulative impact with this new development. So to, just to back up on what we're talking about here, hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling, both are technologies that have been around for a long time. Uh-huh. But now they're using the combination of them along with they've perfected a mixture of chemicals and sand that they mix with water when they do the hydraulic fracturing to push the, these what they call propens, but it usually gets referred to as sand, down into the formation under extremely high pressure, and it breaks, breaks up the rock, it fractures, and these little tiny fractures go out into the rock, and all the chemicals they're using, it's a mix of viscosifiers. So you need a, uh, a fluid that will actually float the sand out into the formation. And then you need lubricants so that those little pieces of sand will make its way through all the nooks and crannies. And then you need chemicals to break all that stuff down so it comes back out so the gas can flow out. Plus mm-hmm. you need biocides and fungicides um, to keep things from growing in those little spaces so the gas can t- continue to flow through there forward um, over time and they've perfected this in the last 20 years and that enables them to go break up these rocks get the gas out of these little tiny formations and if industry has their way they do a grid work across the landscape. We're talking you know, access roads and well pads. Um, and and these- wells that are spaced quite close together, I, as I read in some of the research that I did for this, you know, 100 yards or 2,000 yards from somebody's well. or I mean, like really close together. So it's a lot of, a lot of drilling and a lot of, um, a lot of infrastructure required, right? Yeah, a real uh, incredible amount of infrastructure. I think. And they're talking about building, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but they're talking about building uh, over the next, uh, up to the year 2020, about 30,000 of these wells in the three-state area that comprises the Marcellus Shales Fields, right? Yeah. And that, now, I mean, that which, by the way, would create, they say, by that same year, 200,000 jobs. So, I mean, what is an alternative to this? I mean, well, should we also explain a little bit about what it does? I mean, this is releasing gas to power electric grids in the Northeast. Instead which is of using of coal. Po- instead of coal, right? This is an alternative to coal to power electric usage in the most populated area of the country, right? Or of North America. Is that well, right? I wish it was that simple. Actually, um, the whole gas industry gets pretty complicated. Right now, Chesapeake, which is one of the major players in this region, um, last year sold a lot of their uh, interest in the Marcellus to um, State Hydro, the um, State Oil, Statio Oil, the 
Norwegian company. Uh, and now they're trying to sell some of this to a Chinese firm. Um, and so, in other words, this would not come back into our own. So it, this not, would not feed our own needs for energy. It would be feeding other people's needs for no, energy. No, it would just be they well, own it. It goes into the whole, you know, the whole system of where natural gas is going. They they completed the Millennium Pipeline, which does take the gas down to um, New York markets. Um, but to say that it's necessarily, you know, it's a, it's an alternative. Part of the issue here is it's not about whether or not, you know, we need natural gas. It's part of the energy portfolio in this country. It's part of the energy portfolio that needs to change. One of the biggest dangers about this new development and just shale gas in general, because they're now they're on the extreme edges of the technology and going out and they've created access to major new deposits is it it's going to continue the addiction to fossil fuels um, if we let this go whole hog. But isn't it better to burn natural gas than it is to burn coal? Not if they're getting it improperly. Mm-hmm. Not if they're well, um, polluting aquifers as they go wherever they ever all across the country where they have the industry has operated there's uh, cases of water contamination there's huge community impacts i mean just as an example you know when the industry was saying that they were getting 70% of the water back from a hydraulic fracturing operation mm-hmm. we're talking 3 5 8 million gallons of water that actually equals 560 tractor-trailer loads of toxic waste that has to go somewhere. And right now, uh, there used to be three facilities in New York that could take it, but at this point right now, there are no facilities in the state of New York that where, can take that. Where is that coming from? Where is all that waste coming from? You mean it's a byproduct of yes. uh, breaking up this uh, rock? It's a combination. It's a combination of the chemicals that they pump down. Um, and by the way, you know, the, another big part of the story and why most people get so upset is because of the exemptions that the industry enjoys. One of the exemptions is the Waste Recovery Act of 1980. They, um, the EPA cannot regulate waste from oil and gas production as hazardous wow. waste. Why? So you have a situation where you've got chemicals coming to a site that are regulated as hazardous waste. Right. They pump it down into the ground, then they mix it with highly saline water, um, normally occurring radioactive materials, heavy metals, and other um, naturally occurring toxins that are in the formation, and bring it back up, and it's no longer hazardous waste. It, at that point, becomes industrialized waste. So, and so the regulations for disposing of that are not the same. Exactly. I now, see. let me ask, is coal the other option if this isn't happening? Is coal happening? I mean, is that is that what necessarily is happening if this doesn't happen? No, I don't see it that way. I no? mean, there's conventional natural gas happening, and I and I see, um, you know, the, there's a glut right now for natural gas. There's more natural gas than we can use. Um, in fact, in Canada, one of the big Canadian firms just moved one of their CEOs over to a, a new position, which they're trying to create new markets for natural gas. Mm-hmm. Um, but but natural gas prices have been depressed is, for a while. Is the, is the th- argument you're making the same as like the small farm organic movement and then, then people come back and say, oh, but could that feed the world? I mean, could your alternatives feed the world? I mean, is this just profit making for profit making sake or is there a bona fide 
you know, reality that is being fulfilled by this gas. Or, I mean, like, let's say there was no natural gas or no hydrofracking. What would happen? Would we be able well, to have let's less not, electricity? Let's not deal with fantasy. Let's deal with, with reality. We have natural gas, as I started to say before, is, is a needed part of our energy portfolio. Yeah. But to allow the industry to come into a region of the country, wherever that is, whether it's the Catskills or Wyoming or, or Louisiana Colorado. Yeah, right. or Colorado or all the places that have been doing it, and come into an area, take about $3 million to drill a well, um, make about $19 million, and then after you pay leases and all that, they're actually, you know, they're, they're making a profit of anywhere between 6 to $12 million on it. This is an individual well, too, so we're, we're talking wells in the thousands. And allow them to do it where they trash the landscape and communities wherever they go. So it's not about, you know, an alternative one thing or the other. It's all right. If yeah. you're going to do it at all, do it properly. Correct. And if it can't be done properly, then you don't do it at all. And one last time, give us the, the elevator pitch, the, the, the two-minute thing. Define, quote-unquote, trashing. Give us an example of a town and, and something that might happen to that town in concrete. Like, can people not drink faucet water anymore? Can Is it going to now be uh, sounds of drilling going on? Like, define trashing. Or is for, the agriculture then okay. compromised by yeah. the uh, can water Can you not use? grow food on it yeah. anymore? I can do that. Um, well, in Dimmick, Pennsylvania, there's a nine-square-mile area that they do not, that, that the groundwater is completely contaminated. And if you go um, out to Pavilion, Wyoming, there's a whole series of wells. The individual people's wells have polluted water. Uh, you have um, Louisiana, um, partly because of... Um, the situation there, but you have vast areas of the landscape are contaminated from the flooding and things that have happened with the hurricanes in the past year because of the past few years because of natural gas in the region. Um, you have uh, the Mahongahela River, which um, was taking all the wastewater treatment facilities along the Mahongahela were taking wastewater from these places, and they were all doing it legally. Each individual wastewater treatment facility was taking, you know, the, the proper amount that the, then they were going to release into the environment. But the combination of all of that overloaded the Mahongahela River, where Pittsburgh Steel had to shut down their operations because the water that was coming in from the river was corroding their equipment. Wow. And that, that's a place that serves as a drinking water source for people. Right. Well, one of the articles that I read, which was in ProPublica, it said the review, they were talking about a review of the environmental, um, you know, it was the, the Department of, of uh, Energy Conference Conservation. I'm like suddenly blanking on that, but is that right? The DEC? Yeah, in New York State. Department of, excuse me, environmental concentration, uh, uh, conservation. In Pennsylvania, it's the Department of Environmental Protection. Yeah, and here in New York State, it's the Department of Environmental Cons Conservation. And I urge anybody to go to their website, and you can read a lot of material about this. Um, much of it is, um, you know, very sort of, uh, I would say, mildly, if not wildly enthusiastic about doing this um, but they did do a big review a big environmental review recently and the review which was released uh, a few months ago because this is an article is a few months old leaves some environmental concerns unanswered I'm quoting now it offers few specific measures to protect New York City's watershed the unfiltered source of drinking water for nearly half the state's population 
So that's just one of the major, um, you know, major impacts that this this uh, drive to drill into the Marcellus Shale fields throughout these these regions of New York, New Jersey, and uh, Pennsylvania and West Virginia. You know, the, the, just the drinking water alone. And then there's another issue about the open waste pits. They're trying to, like, you know, because other states, for instance, Pennsylvania does not regulate that, whereas they're trying to do it here. I mean, it's, you know, New York State seems to be trying to make the right decisions about this. Well, the Times is very positive about this, right? I mean, didn't that article that you sent me, I mean, they Big published- money drives up the betting on the Marcellus Shale. Did you see this? It's from Climate Wire. Um, I did not see that. It was article. published in the Times on July eighth. I'm sure you would enjoy reading it. Um, but one of the things that it talks about: drillers blast water, sand, and chemicals eight thousand feet into the ground, creating the pressure needed to crack the shale and release the gas. On today's industrial drilling sites, plumes of smog-forming pollutants escape from trucks, generators, condensate tanks, and compressor stations. I mean, nobody, you know, nobody seems to mind that that's happening. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, here, I mean, they're exempt from the Clean Water Act, yeah. the Clean Air Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, uh, That's crazy. and other the compensation liability or you know circle the all these um, public right to know provisions. Um, I mean, it's it's ludicrous that this industry um, enjoys all these exemptions. It's basically they're getting away um, with. Uh, things that with raping the landscape, other industry is not able to. Yeah, yeah. And there, were, and and you know, and the, and then not only that, then you have this whole series of tax incentives that go go to the industry. Um, on top of that, you know, they get five point nine billion for oil and gas percentage depletion allowance. Uh, gas companies say, get subsidies uh, even if the wells don't yield any products. Um, Three point five billion manufacturing tax deduction. That means taxpayers are subsidizing some of the costs of gas and oil production. And you have, in, I, I like this one, intangible drilling costs. It turns <laughs> out we're paying for 70%, 70 to 100% of the equipment, depending on the size of the company. Well, this could be, um, you know, again, I'm, uh, I always look for like a, a single sentence summary. These are the three issues that seem to me, uh, Tagger, Jack, these to me seem like the three issues. Don't tag these if, if any of our, if Katie or our guests uh, disagree. But one, they have to be held accountable to the same environmental standards as anybody else. Just because they're rich and powerful is, is is not acceptable. Second thing is, um, if this if this were active farmland and small farmers were successful, they wouldn't even consider. You know this, even though they could make a lot of money, you know they wouldn't even consider it because they'd be active farmland. They would be active, successful, bringing product to market, getting paid a premium for their dairy. So I think this is a crying shame that some like literal douchebag at Halliburton is talking about getting into Sullivan County. Like that needs to be active farmland, period. And there need to be new new groups and more groups bringing product to market. And then the third thing I would say, yeah, if it was true active farmland, people wouldn't even consider this, even though they could get rich quick. Third thing is, if these companies are going to come in, they have to pay a fair share. And it's like, you know, people who come to these farms and say, hey, we'll give you a million dollars for this. That farmer has to ask, how many millions are you going to make? Because if you make a hundred million off of it, then pay me 50 million. And then I wouldn't fault them so much for giving up the land if they could get paid 50 million dollars. But those people aren't, I bet, giving them a fair offer 
on the land well, considering that, the profits generated. That well may be, but I think the real issue is kind of like what Obama did with BP, which is to enforce uh, a strict cleanup policy. I mean, if you are going to deploy these chemicals and you're going to drill all these wells, then you have an obligation to clean it up afterwards. And is that what your mission is, Wes? Yes. I mean, that's one thing. And then I also think it's the responsibility of the state agencies because the EPA is not doing their Uh job on this. And what about the Department of Environment? The state agency, you know, come up to the task and look at the cumulative impacts. And they've been allowing um, the different states across the country have been allowing this technology to move across the landscape without really focusing and looking at the differences in geology. I mean, if you had a perfectly um, solid bedrock formation across New York State and you were drilling 8,000 feet down and you're relying on your casing and all that stuff to keep the stuff down below, but that's not the case in New York. New York has highly fractured geology. Mm-hmm. We need the scientific information to back up this claim that it's, it's so far down and it won't come up. Once you alter, you're altering an entire formation. You're taking a formation that was an impervious formation, making it porous, and pumping a bunch of chemicals in there, and then throwing in a throw besides all the perforations you're making between all those containment layers. There's all those naturally occurring faults that there's got to be geologic places in the state that they should not be allowed to drill. So, in other, I mean, you could even cause earthquakes or or land, you know, sort of sinking. What do you call that when that happens? Subsidence. Subsidence. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Are you saying that that could also be an unexpected consequence of this? Uh, yeah, but I'm not. I, you know, again, part of the story here is the science isn't out. You know, I can't say yeah. with any kind of confidence that oh well, subsidence will happen here or earthquakes will happen here because nobody's looked at what this process will do to the geologic formations. And the other thing to remember here, the way industry functions, they're coming into this region. Um, and, you know, this goes back to the spacing unit thing you were saying before. They will start out with larger spacing units um, and multiple wells on a pad, but then typically when they go after shale, they go down space. But then once their equipment and infrastructure is here and all the access roads and the crews, mm-hmm. there's other formations. There's five target formations under the Catskills that have gas in it. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about, you know, the next 50, 75 years yeah. um, of industrial activity across the landscape. To me, this is all about the sustainable movement is manned and on the watch of the sustainable food movement or a bunch of insecure wusses that are not putting their money out there to build slaughterhouses, to build cheeseries, to build dairies, to do this. So, of course, Halliburton becomes attractive. Where would Sullivan County look to Halliburton for a solution in the history of the world? This is one of the most sophisticated, educated areas in the history of the world. Uh, less than an hour's drive from the richest metropolis in the history of the world, most populated, educated, rich metropolis, to be considering Dick Cheney's, you know, offspring in Halliburton <laughs> means that something else is not working. And, and and what's not working is that 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 those farmers are destitute. So any guy who comes along and says, hey. I can give you a small percentage of money for something I can, you know, then rape the land with is is 
it's a symptom of the fact that farmland needs to be farming. And when it's not successful at that, anything becomes attractive. I mean, you could have, uh, you know, a group of uh, a commune of pedophiles come and they'd be like, hey, well, listen, it's money. Let's take it, you know, and that is wrong. They need to have uh, viable options. But Wes, isn't it true that this, I mean, uh, hydraulic fracturing and these this kind of um, oil, natural gas exploration has been going on in the region for about 50 years, right? But not quite to this extent, so right? What, no. what makes it different now than it was, you know, 10 years ago? Uh, well, it hasn't, it hasn't gone on in, in, in this part of the state. In the western part of the state, there's been natural gas extraction, but that's been conventional drilling into pockets of gas. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 80s, there was um, some hydraulic fracturing done in the Medina sandstone um, out in Chautauqua County. But the combination of hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling and the, the specific mix of chemicals that they're using, what they refer to as slick water fracking, Mm-hmm. Has really only been developed since the since the the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. So it's been going on for over a decade, anyway. It's but about not here, but not here in the Catskills, and elsewhere in the state. What's they your answer? What's not your elsewhere an- in the state? It hasn't happened in New York. Oh, I see. And, it, and it's only it's it's just begun in Pennsylvania, New York, in the last um, couple of years. New York, um, there's some hor- there's some vertically drilled wells that have been hydraulic fractured. And what do you say to the devil's advocate that says, well, they're going to produce 200,000 jobs by the year 2020? Well, you really need to weigh those jobs against the cost of cleanup, uh, mm-hmm. you know, cost the infrastructure costs. I mean, when you have a and the other thing is they don't just come in here and hire a bunch of local people. They're bringing worker a lot of the workers in. Yeah, that's so, been one issue, right? I mean, right now there's a there's a uh, they're building a six hundred um, to a, a six hundred person man camp in Pennsylvania, south of Binghamton, to bring in workers and house 600 workers from wherever they're bringing them in from. Usually Oklahoma. Texas, Oklahoma, places where they've already worked in, uh, mm-hmm. in natural gas drilling. I, yeah, I was wondering about that also, because they do, you know, that is a big sort of carrot that's held out to the population or to communities. Oh, yeah, you're going to get all these jobs out of this. Minimum and then, wage jobs. And then in the end, you don't necessarily get those jobs because they bring in experts from another... Um, from another area. Listen, you know, Wes, we're going to have to wrap it up here because we have another guest. Um, we're having David Haight or Height on from the American Farmland Trust. Oh, great. Um, so he's going to follow you and talk a little bit more about the impact on agriculture and what they've been doing. But, but David, you have been very... No, oh, I'm Wes. sorry, Wes. Sorry. Jeez, yeah, we'd I love to have you back. Wes, you've been very well-spoken and, um, you know, uh, definitely you should come back. And if you're ever in the city, come into the studio. Roberta's here, 261 yeah. more. And, uh, you know, we'll make a segment just for you because uh, you are a, a, nece- a very necessary voice where... For some reason in this democratic country, you know, uh, they don't get heard in the places that are important. But um, it definitely seems like you're fighting a very important fight and uh, Heritage Radio Network stands behind you. Well, thank you. <laughs> so, Wes, we'll talk to you again sometime soon. Let's let's definitely keep this subject, you know, on the back burner yeah. and revisit as as things develop. So, and, and just one one last thing yeah, that yeah. you were saying about Wuss's um, <laughs> taking on the Thanks. the Catskill Mountain Keeper and uh, working with um, a bunch of other organizations and Columbia Institute. They're doing a study that will come out in July as looking at the Catskills as a food shed for New York City. Good, cool. That's it. Because I'll say there's one important thing. Get the food to market. 
everyone's like, whoa, whoa, before that. I'm like, no, that is only that. Yeah, Get the it's food all about, to the market. It's all about the distribution. Get the food to the market. Get a truck. Someone sell it. Someone collect on that money. Someone pay the farmer. There is nothing else to discuss other than getting the farmer paid so that they don't get tempted. So they, they see a lifestyle that's going to be good for their kids, for their grandkids, that they can get paid $100,000 a year and travel. That is the only thing that matters is the sale. And then everything else follows from the sale. You know, the sale starts the, the whole mechanism going. So I applaud that, Wes. And, you know, I hope that's successful because the whole this whole argument exists because farming is not a viable option yeah. right yep. now. And, and it's appropriate because American Farmland Trust is one of the partners with us. On Good. That. Oh, Excellent. great. On to the next speaker. So Thanks on to the next speaker. Thank you very much, Wes. Really appreciate it. And please let me know when that report gets published. I'd love to get a copy of it. We'll okay. be back in one minute. Okay. Thanks, buddy. Love is blinded, so was I when I fell for you. You lit me up with all those fancy words just like a fuse. Filled my head with love and lies a memory can't erase. Not long before you're done, I might have blown up in my face. You would set me off a blazing up to the sky. Not knowing I could fall so hard when I was up so high. You played me up just like a fool to only let me down. You take on me for granted, sent me crashing to the ground. Listening to the main course on Heritage Radio Network. My name is Katie Kiefer, and I'm here with my co-host Patrick Martins. Uh, our engineer today is Nat Weiner. Our producer is Jack Insley, and we have been discussing um, the exploration and collection of natural gas in the Marcellus Shale Fields and its impact on agriculture and communities in upstate New York, uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and West Virginia. Um, we just concluded our conversation with Wes Gillingham from the Catskill Mountain Keeper Organization. Very well spoken. Yeah, terrific guest. And um, now we'd, we'd like to welcome 
I'm David Haight from the American Farmland Trust, who is one of the partners in the Catskill Mountain Keeper and I'm sure many other organizations that are, are working hard to um, control the uh, the greed. Well, we might as well just say what it is. The greed of, the, is. of the natural gas and energy industries. So um, welcome, David. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm sorry we were a little late getting to you, but Wes was so fabulous. We couldn't stop. <laughs> uh, I, it's great to be with you both. So, can you tell us a little bit about American Farmland Trust and what you're, you know, how you guys are working with this in terms of? Well, um, tell us about the American Farmland Trust, just yeah, period, okay. and then because and I then know we'll this is a on. subset of the very many things that you do. Yeah, absolutely. The American Farmland Trust is a national organization. Uh, we're actually celebrating our 30th birthday this year. Uh, so happy 30. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, for the American Farmland Trust, we were really started to respond to what uh, we saw as a major national uh, problem, which was the loss of farmland uh, to development. Uh, you know, essentially here in this country, about a million acres of farmland is developed in the subdivisions every year. Hmm. And so and the American Farmland Trust has been working for 30 years to help protect farmland so that we can continue to grow food and have the other benefits that agriculture brings to this country. And uh, you literally also- buy the land, right? I mean, is that... Would you- you just buy it, right? And so that you can then be deciding how it's used. Well, we use uh, many strategies, Patrick. I mean, to be honest with you, there's not enough money to buy all the agricultural land in this country. So mm-hmm. frequently, we're involved in helping to buy conservation easements on farms, okay. uh, which pays a landowner to uh, permanently protect their land. They continue to own it mm-hmm. and continue to farm it. Um, but it puts restrictions on that property so that it can never be developed. Um, so those are programs that we've been very active in helping to stimulate, and we've helped protect about 2 million acres of farmland across America through um, those Unbelievable. Programs. And what, what do you have to navigate in order? Are you navigating state laws or national laws? Is it different in every state? I mean, like, how, how do you go about, uh, you know, fighting those battles? Well, Patrick, the, the answer is yes to all those sub-questions you asked. I mean, there's a lot of different strategies we have to employ. I mean, number one, we are working very hard to help landowners understand that there are options. And that's, quite frankly, one of the biggest challenges here in this Marcellus Shale issue is that there are some very fundamental economic tensions here. Um, and so landowners frequently feel like the only way that they can, you know, put a child through college, you know, retire, uh, pay medical bills, uh, is to sell part of their land. Um, and so we fr- we're very working very hard to help landowners understand what those other options are, working with communities to make sure that their landowners and their community have options. Um, and then we are, we're good guy lobbyists, uh, kind of like Wes. Uh, and so we do advocacy in places like Albany and Washington, D.C., to make sure that we have strong state laws and state programs, and then we have funding, quite frankly, to make sure that our, our farmers here in New York uh, have options for keeping their land and farming. Isn't it true that the farmers could actually lease part of their land to natural gas drilling and, and eventually get that land back? I mean, I think, doesn't a lot of it work on the basis of leasing and royalty interests? So the farmer leases out his, you know, a section of his property, say he owns 200 acres and he can lease 100 acres and, and get royalties off of that. And then eventually once the, the oil deposit or the natural gas deposit is exhausted, don't they get that land back? Or is it just completely destroyed for agricultural use afterwards? 
Uh, that's a great question, Katie. I guess the first thing I would say is that sometimes um, people think that oil and gas exploration only happens in places like Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, but New York, quite frankly, has actually had a long history, like our neighbors in Pennsylvania, of uh, oil and gas exploration. We actually have more than 10,000 uh, wells, uh, gas wells, here in New York. Uh, not all of them active, but um, so we have an extensive history of that. Absolutely. 13,000. I got that from the DEC. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> DEC numbers. Um, but yeah, frequently what will happen, and this has uh, been happening for decades in New York, is that farmers or landowners will uh, lease the right to uh, explore and extract. Uh, could be oil, but frequently it's it's natural gas uh, from underneath their property. Now, they can continue to own that property mm-hmm. um, throughout the duration of those agreements, but it's just subject now to this lease. And I think, quite frankly, one of the biggest challenges we've seen is that um, common for landowners not to really know what their options are. And so the leases that they sign can give away very, very significant rights. So they might wow. might lease away, you know, they think they're giving away something underneath the ground, but the lease language actually gives the company the ability to put up um, all sorts of equipment on top of the land, pumping stations, cut down trees, put in pipelines. Mm-hmm. I mean, frequently these, these lease arrangements are, are very unfair to the landowners. And so, you know, I'm very happy to see that there's been a number of our partner organizations, uh, groups like New York Farm Bureau and others, that have been working really hard to make sure that landowners understand what their rights are. Mm-hmm. Because Absolutely. These, these I mean, companies this goes are multi-billion dollars. Who, who, who won Best Actor for that movie about the oil drilling? I mean, that whole movie was based off that, where he kills the guy. Uh, what is that famous movie that came about oil drilling? Jack? Not, there will be blood. There will be oh, yeah. blood. I mean, <laughs> since 1850, there have been guys just bold face lying, you know, with some legal contract and, you know, screwing over these innocent landowners that are just like, God, I can't believe these guys screwed me like that, came into my home and yeah. bold face lied to me. Well, yeah. when you and I spoke the other day, um, David, we talked about sort of those those pressures um, between the fact that, say, in the dairy industry, with milk prices being so depressed, um, it's a tremendous incentive for farmers to lease or sell out their land, and that there is some sort of a trade-off here that um, that is difficult to sort of deny, I guess, or, or difficult to uh, convince farmers that it's better to continue to lose money than it is <laughs> than it is to sell out. So I was just wondering if you wanted to just um, speak to that issue for a few minutes, because I think that's a really key part of the puzzle yeah, here. What if someone came along, some wealthy billionaire, and's like, yeah, I'll mean, buy all says, the dairy yeah. for twice commodity, and I'll just figure out what to friggin' do with it. I'll make a cheese or something. Wouldn't that end this whole discussion? Yeah, I'm, Katie and I spoke about this the other day. There's this fundamental tension here in the, the Marcellus Shale issue, and you have, you've got these major public concerns about water, quite frankly. I mean, that's the fundamental issue here, yeah. and the, the potential impacts to drinking water. Um, you know, I think we're in an area of the country where just there hasn't been as much very visible oil and gas extraction. It's been more behind the scenes, and it hasn't happened with the intensity that's being proposed as part of this Marcellus Shale. Uh, play. So you've got some very fundamental issues here with protecting the water supply for millions and millions of people, and those are very real concerns. But the 
the counterbalancing tension is that there are uh, landowners here in this in the state of New York um, are are hurting uh, significantly. Farmers are uh, here in New York. We have a farm developed every three days. Wow! And, and the reason for that fundamental, or one of the major drivers of that, is because people aren't making enough money growing the crops, growing the food that they have on their farm. Correct. So, what do you think? So, you think? I mean, we we keep talking on this program about you know distribution channels, aggregation, warehouses, yeah, heritage getting foods, that mar- getting that food to market in a way that you know makes sense for for farmers and where they get the price that they should be getting for their crops instead of having to, you know, suck it up and, and take the lowest price that's being offered in the commodity markets. So how do you, I mean, I don't see how that's going to be rectified. Sales, sales. There need to be more sales groups, not yep. talkers. Well, and it, it fundamentally for dairy, I mean, the challenge is that our, people that produce milk in this country, the system for marketing milk is, you know, from 60, year, 70 years old, and it needs to be changed. And that's a federal decision. We have this antiquated system that decides how much farmers are going to get paid for the milk they produce. Fundamentally, though, in 2009, the average New York dairy farmer lost about $100,000. Which is just incredible. I mean, when you consider that their profit margin is virtually zero. And considering how close they are sometimes, in many cases, to New York City. I've, no, it's, it's, it's astounding that you know, I can't imagine in my personal life putting in 70 hours a week at work and then at the end of the year, you know, looking at my tax return and seeing a negative, you know, $100,000, $200,000. And so these landowners, understandably, are very vulnerable. Yes, absolutely. Now, if you were one of these landowners um, and you were making a fairer price, I mean, I guess my, my point is, is why aren't there more cooperative sales groups? entities? Yes. Yeah, where I mean, because in Rhode Island and Connecticut, the dairy industry has consolidated into a state, you know, it's like Rhodey Fresh Milk. It's all the dairy farmers in Rhode Island got together, got a place to process their milk, and they distribute it throughout the grocer- local grocery stores in Rhode Island. I don't see that in New York. And well, I don't what is the American Farmland Trust doing to actually, I mean, tackle the situation that you bring up? Well, so both of you asked a series of great questions. I guess the one <laughs> where New York compares to Rhode Island and Connecticut, part of it has to do with scale. Mm-hmm. I mean, New York is the third largest dairy producing state in America. Mm-hmm. And Rhode Island and Connecticut are very much further down the food chain. So just the amount of milk that they're looking to sell is just a lot smaller. Right. We do have some great examples, you know, the Hudson Valley Freshes of the world. And, you know, we've oh, got yeah. other farms that are doing the direct-to-consumer route. Um, we just need a lot more of that. Um, but we also need, quite frankly, changes in our in federal legislation. And I know this is something that we have been working with our congressional delegation about so that farmers in the Northeast, because we're producing milk for people in very close proximity to be able to drink. I mean, predominantly it's a fluid milk market. Our farmers should be getting paid a higher price because those are that's a premium product. But the mm-hmm. system they've got in place doesn't allow for that. Um, so we need to change federal legislation, number one. Secondly, we do need to encourage more of this direct-to-consumer sales. Part of that is infrastructure. I think both of you have touched on that. We need to get economic development dollars oriented towards food. 
I agree. Uh, well, you know, I would say the federal this and that. I'm three people, and I put $80,000 into small farmers' pockets a week. It is not brain surgery. You know what I mean? What we need is some dude to say, I'm going to buy all your milk and sell it for a dollar more a pound, period. You know, it takes vigilanteism to change the federal <laughs> policies. You know what I mean? It takes someone to friggin' do it. Yeah, to just do it. You know, and there's not one, one, literally not one millionaire who has put in money to open a slaughterhouse. Or a creamery. Or a creamery. So come on. If they would stop talking about it, it would be a lot more easy to bear. But the fact that they talk about it so much and have all these meetings in their homes and at their whatever odd fellows houses and all of this and they have they'll close off a street and then they'll be like, oh, did I get invited to the Slow Food International event? And, you know, all these very wealthy people are trying to get to their thing. And meanwhile, they're not doing anything what you need is a truck driver that's the first guy you need second guy you need someone on the phones third guy you need a bookkeeper then you're done you know what i mean it's talking about three people who are empowered to do something you know i mean robert moses was uh you know the last of these great people who did whatever the hell he wanted but you know the czar is not you know such a bad idea because you know without him I'm not going to write to my congressman. I don't know. I mean, is that going to do anything? I mean, it's not to belittle what American Farmland Trust is doing, but I think sometimes people make the solution sound more complicated than it is. It's about some dude driving to a bodega and closing a deal so someone can get paid $3 a pound for their milk. Well, and I think the solution is going to be not just one solution. I think you're right that you need to take the bull by the horns and better connect our consumers with our farmers. But, you know, quite frankly, I think a lot of times that can be greatly facilitated by changes in legislation or funding, quite frankly. And so that is where things happening in Washington or Albany are really critical. Absolutely. And I would say on on the Marcellus Shale issue, I think, you know, those fundamental economic issues are front and center. And so we've got to find some way to protect the public public's interest in having a clean drinking water supply for millions of people in the area. But then we've also got to deal with it in a way that is equitable and fair to farmers and landowners. And that's Quite frankly, that's not an easy solution to come up with. Um, and so I'm I, certainly the American Farmland Trust is very focused on trying to find a solution like that that's both practical but provides the environmental results um, that the public is looking for, but also, um, you know, in an economically uh, fair way to farmers and landowners. So it's part of it's looking at, you know, what's going to happen to this water. I mean, I think the, the millions of gallons of water that are going to be disposed of in you know, with a third of it staying in the groundwater reservoirs, that's a real concern. Uh, oh, we yeah. just saw um, a case in Pennsylvania about two weeks ago where uh, the uh, frac fluid that had come that had been uh, stored in kind of an um, above-ground pond um, leaked out of that pond into a neighboring farm field, and uh, you know, roughly 30 dairy cows were seen in that area, and they weren't sure if they had consumed any of that water, but they. They're going to have to be quarantined for you know six months to a year because they're not sure if any of the heavy metals that are in that frac fluid right had made their way into the milk supply. That's right. I'm so, surprised it didn't just kill them right outright. It's like 260 chemicals, different separate chemical components that they're using in this 
frack fluid, as they say. Um, so it's hard to imagine. And But one thing about, like in Pennsylvania, it seemed to me in the course of all the reading I did, that the environmental regulations in Pennsylvania are far less stringent than what is being proposed for New York State. And I'm sure it's, you know, thanks to advocacy group like yours that is putting pressure on Albany to actually really conduct a thoroughly, a much more thorough environmental review uh, before they're letting people go forward with, um, you know, major scale drilling. But it's it looks like it's kind of already en route, as they say. <clears throat> and, you know, the cow being a bit out of the barn before um, before any of the real environmental impact studies have been issued. Did you do you have that same sense as well? Well, I mean, I think New York is certainly spending more time analyzing the issue than Pennsylvania did. Um, you know, we are in the middle of this um, GEIS process mm-hmm. uh, being conducted by the Department of Environmental Conservation. I think it's good news that the uh, Federal Environmental Protection Agency is undergoing a national assessment of hydrofracking, um, and they're actually going to be holding some hearings, uh, one of them coming up uh, in August in New York, uh, looking at that issue. So I think it makes absolute sense to look at both the direct impacts of, of hydrofracking. Interestingly, though, when I speak with rural communities, they're frequently concerned about some of the uh, secondary impacts, like how, what is this going to mean in terms of truck traffic on rural right. roads? Um, you know, some of the people you're speaking to in a rural community in the Finger Lakes last week were saying that they expect there's going to be a lot more need for gravel to build some of these roads on rural farms and that there's going to be a need to open up a lot more gravel mines. Well, some of our best farmland in New York is happens to be located on large gravel deposits. Wow. So I think there's a lot of concern, or at least uh, trying to anticipate what are the secondary or the tertiary impacts of this, this drilling activity. And then what are the cumulative impacts? I think that's something that the environmental community has been very vocal about, that if you were to put up, you know, over the next uh, 10, 20 years, 10,000 new wells in New York, what would be the cumulative effect of all of that activity? Yeah. They're actually talking 30,000 in the stuff that I read on the DEC website. Yeah, um, I think that's what they're talking for the, for the entire by shale 2020, deposit. I guess, yeah. right, for all three states, yeah. That's pretty breathtaking, though. That's a, that's a pretty... Thick, uh, you know, grid of wells going down, and a lot of, as you say, infrastructure. A lot of of little roads being built, and also the containment tanks. And you know, whether or not it's a containment tank, or whether it's just an open pit for the wastewater. I mean, as you say, the uh, you know that stuff leaks. Environmental disasters happen, even under the best of you know intentions. No, absolutely. And I think it's important that we make sure that our State Department of Environmental Conservation have appropriate staff. I think it's also important that we actually have staff at our State Department of Agriculture and Markets uh, that are focused on, as these sites are remediated, that farmland that's been impacted, rather than just being flat and level at the end, actually has the soil structure put back so that you could actually grow things on it again. Yeah, well, I would think that would be like a key factor in the environmental impact studies. That that's what you would want if you're going to do this. Then you then they must have an obligation to restore the land to what it was before they started their uh, explorations. Absolutely, and I think, but the the focus on not only just having it be flat and level and you know drain appropriately, but to be farmable again, mm-hmm. that's something not everybody takes into consideration. So for an organization like ours, that's one of our top priorities. Yeah. 
Um, not certainly looking at, you know, what, what about setting up a mitigation fund? Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of degrees of where mitigation might be needed, but let's just, let's just be open and honest and say there will be some impacts. We know there will be. Sure. Um, and I think it would be fantastic as this, you know, uh, force that's going to change our landscape, that there would be some funding that would come out of it that would go towards protecting parts of our landscape, particularly our agricultural land that is under such threat. So that this for you know, economic force that's proposed to be a trillion dollars, a trillion dollars of gas extracted, um, that that could have some element of that money go towards helping to protect farmland uh, so that we can continue to grow food here in New York and the Northeast. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think we should um, wrap this up, David. I really appreciate your time today, and I hope you'll come back. Um, and even better, come to the studio sometime. Um, but I'd love to stay on this issue and, and revisit in the next you know three to six months to see where things stand. And I know that uh, Wes was talking about a new report that's coming out in August. I'd love to see a copy of that. Maybe we can talk about that in a few months. Um, but just sort of you know stay with the, the finger on the pulse here and talk about this and, and maybe rope in some farmers for the next one, as well as somebody from the DEC. I couldn't get yeah, them this time. Yeah, let's get uh, Cheney in. The DEC didn't want to comment because they're still Cheney in the review. Let's get Cheney in to defend Halliburton. If, he can, <laughs> if his metal detector or whatever heart uh, pump doesn't uh, screw up in our shipping container here, maybe we could have him That's in. Right. But anyway, thank you very much, David, with the American Farmland Trust for joining us today. And uh, we'll be in touch. I really yeah. Uh, and uh, give us your website. Uh, Ann Yonkers is a very uh, big supporter of Slow Food USA during its early days. And I, I think she was a big part of the American Farmland Trust in Washington, D.C. She also started the Washington, D.C. Farmer Market. Farmer's Market. Yeah, up at DuPont Circle. Yeah, the American Farmland Trust, our website is www.farmland.org. And if you want to find information about what's going on here in New York, it's just farmland.org backslash New York. You can but, tell it's a good organization just by the quality of the website they got. Yeah, absolutely. No, really, it was so informative. Thanks so much, David. All right, great. Thank and you, we'll Katie and Patrick. Soon. I really we'll appreciate it. It was great being with you. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye.
What was that song? I liked it, Katie. That what was, was the name so of it? That was so cool. It's called The Knife Show. It's oh, the by one by Jack and Nat? Jack Inslee and Nat Wiener. Wow. How, do we have a talented staff or what? Yeah, they... I mean, unbelievable. Some, that like, was way Pol- cool, you guys. Rush Eastern European woman to sing over that. <laughs> I liked it. That, that was really the excellent. Night show. Yeah. How can we find more music uh, from Nat uh, and Jack, Katie? I, I, well, I suspect they probably have some kind of a website where we can... Uh, access that myspace.com slash knife show music well this might be a good time jack why don't you come come on up here and tell us uh, a little bit now you guys just had a big uh what are they calling it nowadays uh dj parties yeah they're, they're called parties uh, parties now you show up there's music you dance and wow. now you socialize guys have, how was it how it was, was your good. party it's a tandem around the block from the station as patrick has mentioned uh in public and on radio I, I do everything in my life In this six block radius Of Bushwick <laughs> He's all about local Yeah so when you had to go To Governor's Island A couple of weeks ago That must have been a real He called Terrifying me. He's Did like, you get on a passport <laughs> It was terrifying Terrifying I stayed Too on the phone funny. With my mom the whole time <laughs> So tell us about What is your music 
you know, what's behind it? Where do you play, you know, uh, your collaboration with Nat? Yeah, we make uh, weird dance music and uh, we do remixes for some artists. Uh, we, we started doing it at NYU when we went for music technology. And when we're not here doing this, that's what we're doing, making making weird music. And where yeah, can like, people like that hear music it? you were like hearing on the just radio? Now <laughs> online. Online? Yeah, online. And what is, uh, how would you define your music? I mean, I heard that. I mean, is there a thread to the various things you do? Is it about beats? Is it about rhythm? Is it about let's ability say, to dance? Let's say finding a common ground between avant-garde and pop music. Ooh. We like that. Somewhere, somewhere. Did you improv that just there? That's pretty good. <laughs> That's a good elevator pitch, sweetie. I did, so, but... Um, it, would it be safe to say you're hydrofracking uh, between <laughs> pop and dance? Extracting the pop out of the avant-garde, yes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah, but are you sending some slippery chemicals in there? To do Abs- it? Absolutely. Dispersants. <laughs> absolutely. Lots of byproducts. So, and uh, where can people hear are you? Do you have another performance you want to tell every us Every month at Tandem. The second Friday of every month, we, we do a... And tomorrow, that's right, we'll At be at Tandem. Public Assembly tomorrow night oh. in, in Williamsburg. But every Which every cool. second Friday... Tandem's a great restaurant. Uh, bar, restaurant, yeah, they have, they have, good, they have grass-fed meatballs there. Actually. And their very interesting owner who built that whole place by hand. It's a real It's a real place. old bar, too, I think, yeah. like from way back. Is that cool. a place right around the corner from here? Pretty much, yeah. it's pretty close, yeah. How yeah. far, now, how, when is that, Saturday? Every second Friday of okay. every month. Jack Inslee, Nat Wiener. Yes. Hydro, hydro frack in the tunes. We're going to have Katie uh, be our dancer every yeah. month. Yeah. <laughs> have to yeah, find that, a, uh, I'm waiting for you to do my calendar first. <laughs> we'll have to find yeah. a, one of those poles with those uh, those uh, things that take old people up the stairs yeah. where you can go up it's called a winkelator. and down the pole. I, I have a winkelator. Oh, oh, brother. I own one. <laughs> Katie's like, I'm, I've had my 30th beer. Get the uh, winkelator out. I got myself a winkelator. Well, we All right, have, Jack. We well, thanks, thanks for, for the coming on. Update. And, um, yep. That will segment you? will have no tags. <laughs> yeah, thanks, well, Nat. You're going to put them in after the show. Um, see you guys later. Yeah. Thanks, Jack. So, Patrick, let's just um, remind people. Summarize. Well, let's summarize and then remind people about our fantastic sponsor, uh, S. Wallace Edwards and Son. Yeah, best and Suriano uh, American-style prosciutto. Absolutely. Arguably within the country. But he'd be competing with four other guys. I mean, you yeah. know, and probably each Benton, you know, uh, Al Benton would be one guy. Um, anyway, they're just a very Nancy Newsom. I mean, you're talking about a hand full of people still producing old, you know, cures. Well, I bet our, our guest in the studio right now could comment on cured products. Erica? I, Erica Demain, author of The Flavors of Southern Italy. Um, and uh, you wrote Pasta Improvisata. And you supplied the Italian section for the new Joy of Cooking that came out a few years ago. Very interesting. Now, and do has you a fantastic talk about blog. existing things like just buy a pound of parma prosciutto and serve it or are you i mean where do you do about value-added things i i do both i mean i i have to say as a you know i i really take it where i can get it you know um you know (laughs) well it's true as a chef you want the best and if it's if you're going to find something local and good like you know i do write about it on my blog i mean good local salamis and um but i also I'm very, very much interested in getting imported products and using them. 
You are. Yeah, I still am. Because so you'll hydrofrack uh, the entire food supply <laughs> if you need to. <laughs> well, I don't think she's that violent. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just—it's really—it's really important to me to, to be able to go and get a cheese from Friuli, or I mean, I—I I mean, above all. I mean, I, I know this doesn't sound completely politically correct, but I'm as a, a, a chef, I'm primarily interested in flavor, and I go where I find flavor. So that so you will super flavor will supersede the whole local thing. You're more into in, locale. I am into flavor. Period. And well, as is any. Well, Patrick, I mean, you're exactly the same way. I mean, you've, you often use the analogy of if the apricots from Yemen are the best apricots, then yes. get the apricots from Yemen. Yeah. Well, if something t- tastes has value, it raises the bar for everybody else. It yeah. means that right. you know you can that's strive right. to make something that's that good. That's right. If and you pe- want to make it locally, and mm-hmm. people should experience the real deal. Yeah. And it's the only way that, like, for instance, the, the woman from upstate New York at, at the Union Square Market makes her, you know, Italian pecorinos because they went there and spent years and years mm-hmm. tasting and, you know, and working on the farms up there. Now they do it from upstate New York, and it's fabulous. And, and look at Sam Edwards with his hands. With the Suriano That's 400 yeah. miles from New York City. Right. Yeah. Something right. that is right And they there. really are. We tried. Remember last year we tried it at the Fancy yep. Food Show. You were with me. It, and it, it was, was amazing. Absolutely. And we went by this week. I mean, this year, too. It's only a second year doing it. Yeah. They were great. I mean, we or were third. we were really impressed when we went, stopped by the S. Wallace Edwards uh, and Sons stand at the food show. Well, we should just close up. I mean, I, I think the hydrofacking issue was real an issue. You know, we didn't have anyone defending it because, like, for instance, that New York Times article you had me read completely defended it. Well, guess I, I called the independent oil and gas um organization that is uh, responsible for granting a lot of the leases and some of the regulation and so forth. And I did chat with somebody there and I told them what we were planning to do and who the other guests were. And, um, you know, basically they declined to participate. Thinking um, that it wasn't going to be a friendly... I don't know what they thought. I mean, I, I went into this with a very open mind. I mean, I see it as, uh, you know, if New York State is really, uh, you know, going to walk the walk in terms of you know, really pursuing these strong regulations, then, you know, maybe there's something good about this. Well, also the Um, fact that no one convinced me that coal wouldn't be the only other option. You know what I mean? Like, people are like, oh, we don't need oil. Let's lessen our independence on oil. I'm like, really? Is that possible right now? Well, I don't you know. So. I, mean, they're, they're, I mean, the natural gas industry is touting natural gas as the alternative to coal and, in some cases, to oil as a, as a fossil fuel that has a much less of a carbon footprint. And so, therefore, and it's also cheaper. And so, therefore, you know, it should be invested in and we should all be rejoicing in the possibilities of natural gas. But, you know, as it pointed out in that New York Times article, which ran on July 8th, um, if the t- natural gas prices tank, which they might well do because there's such an oversupply of it, why then, you know, all of this is moot because nobody will want to spend the money on extracting right. it because it is ultimately all driven by profits. So. And what I always loved about when this one thing I learned, and then we'll get to Erica, but when we get... Um, <laughs> when, oh, why? When, no. <laughs> uh, I loved it. Carl, I made her come in anyway. <laughs> no matter what... I love it here. No matter what question, Carl Petrini, who's the founder of Slow Food, who I, you know, worked... Uh, you know, in the same room with them for a year. 
no matter what question he was asked, how old are you? What's your favorite food? Uh, what's your take on the Euro, you know, regulations for, you know, DOC, the denomination of origin controlé products? He would always answer the question with whatever issue he wanted to answer. Uh-huh. Even if he was invited for a keynote speech to, to talk about, you know, economic developments. If he wanted to talk about brat cheese for two hours, he yeah. would. You know what I mean? And I think, like, this hydrofracking thing, it's a lesson that can be learned with the hydrofracking. While all those people are fighting, and there's this and there's that, the subversive act of an 18-wheeler truck driving an 18-wheel truck load of cheese to 500 restaurants and stores and supermarkets, Fairway alone, yeah, Fairway Market alone would be the entire solution to all Sullivan County dairy makers. I repeat, one market chain of five markets in New York City, single-handedly, Sullivan County done, yeah. no hydrofracking. Because the farmers aren't trying to get $2 million. If they could get paid enough for their kids to stay on the farm, they'd do it. They're not trying to get the most. They wouldn't be farmers. They would be on Wall Street if they were trying to get as much money That's as right. possible. So it, it's just that. You know, it's, um, you know, I'm doing my part. Anne's doing his, her part. You know, but um, I, I think the solution, you know, while the fight's being there, that's not the real fight. The real fight is farmers need to get be paid a fair wage for their food. Yeah. Anyway. That's right. Anyway. So let's talk to our, our guest, Erica Demain. Well, a little bit about farmers markets because I know you wanted to chat a bit about that. So speaking of farmers, farmers well, I markets. do have one thing to say that uh, in terms of what Patrick just said about people getting paid, I am very happy to pay more money to go to my farmers markets and buy the best I can buy and get the best flavor. And I go to the farmers markets every day, just about. I, I you am, do. Which one? I, I, well, I go to Union Square every day that it's open, and I go to the one near my house in the West Village called a- a- Abington Square, which is lovely. Is the Union Square and Abington Square farmers markets good farmers markets by international standards? If you compare to the West Coast or France or Spain, like... Oh, I think so. I mean, they're all local. I mean, if you go to... I just came back from Barcelona, and you go to the big markets there... And maybe, you know, a quarter of the stuff at at the markets there are local. Everything else is just, like, flown in or, you know, same thing with Italy. If you go to the big markets, you know, the smaller local markets, like if you go to, you know, a market in Tropani or someplace in Sicily, you're going to get all local just about. But oftentimes... You know, you go to uh, uh, Campo di Fiore in, in Rome. There's not all local produce there, but at, at Union Square, you are getting all local produce. And it is, the t- and again, back to the flavor. I go there because I know I'm going to get the best flavor. I mean, the stuff is local. Organic doesn't, I mean, it's nice. I'm glad it's organic. I will buy it if it's organic. I will buy it if it's not organic. I look, I smell, you know, I look at the, for the color. I mean, I look for things that I want that, you know, that I haven't been able to find. I mean, I just found huge bunches of savory at Union Square. And I haven't cooked the sa- summer savory. What um, is the savory? Sav- savory is an herb. A lovely herb. Yeah, it, what it is is, is, is it's a very strong herb. There's a winter a savory and a summer savory. The summer savory is a little bit softer 
uh, in flavor. It's kind of like, I would say, sort of a mix of fresh oregano and fresh thyme. Mm. Wouldn't you say? I would, with a little bit of citrus thrown yeah, in well, there, it's maybe. Yeah, well, it's in the mint family. It's for the summer. For the summer. The winter one is more like a thyme. Yeah. But the and summer has a bit more of a citrusy flavor, like and, a lemon thyme. Right. Lovely. And the, the winter one is, is stronger. It's something yeah. you need to cook into something. I mean, if you're making a stew, you would use the winter thyme and winter savory um, thrown in in the, in the beginning of cooking. I mean, summer savory is something you can scatter over a, a finished dish like you would parsley or... So anyway, I was very, very thrilled to find this, and I just brought a ton of it home and used it in a million ways. And I just, I'm just thrilled with these markets. I mean, I have to say, these markets have like, changed my life. I mean, I'm, this is not an exaggeration. As a chef, um, as a home cook and a chef, these markets have, have changed my life. And, um, so what did you do before farmers markets? Because I mean that's a farmers market phenomenon. Not to date you, but started in like 1979 or eight. Well, right? before that, I lived um, on Long Island where we had farmers markets, <laughs> and my father had a big backyard garden, and I'm I was used to fresh produce. My father, you know, I come from a southern Italian family. He always had his huge market. We had, you know, wild arugula growing in the backyard that he smuggled in from Sorrento in like 1963. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It was a weed. It grew all over the backyard. We had everything, you know, incredible eggplants, peppers, tomatoes. I mean, it was his baby. He was he was out there three in the morning, you know, cigarette hanging out of his, you know, mouth and you know, weeding, you know, a drink in one hand and. You know, and and just obsessed with his garden. And I did grow up with, um, you know, even though I lived like 20 minutes, I lived in Nassau County, like 25 minutes from Manhattan. But I had fresh produce and I grew up with it. And then, um, and we had farmer's markets all over Nassau County where when I was a kid. And they're all gone now because there's no farms there. Uh-huh. It's all been developed. They've, it's all been developed. Yeah. It's all McMansions. And that's what happened. And... Um, and that's was, what the American Farmland Trust is trying to preserve some right, of the rest of the acreage right? from. There were tons of them, and they're, and they're gone. So, you know, I came into the city and actually moved right across the street from Union Square when it was like a drug-infested hellhole, and um, you couldn't even go in there. And then the market started growing up um, gradually, and I was, I was thrilled. I, I had my produce back it was uh it's amazing so how do you still find novelty i mean being in the industry not as long as katie but you know for you know a <laughs> few <millennia>. decades <laughs> what the, know. you know you know that i've been, I've been in the around. industry for the, for the millennia you, how do you find uh, novelty still are there still new recipes is there some yes. ingredient that you find a new way or is it about well, perfecting stuff up all the time I, but i mean what can still be made up you're talking about the same 1000 ingredients how many possible you would be surprised yeah, really you know at for instance i I've, I've been on a real zucchini tear lately and you know <laughs> i mean you know you go to union square and there are now about you know six different types of zucchini and i found a new zucchini. I, actually, I, I saw it last summer too. But I found the avocado zucchini, Ooh. and it looks like an avocado, and it's round. And you open it up, and it's all creamy, and looks like an avocado inside. But it tastes like a zucchini, but it has a texture of it doesn't have any, you know, no seeds, hardly any seeds. <gasps> 
And it, I made, for instance, I scooped out the insides and I chopped them up and I mixed them with some cooked farro and some pancetta oh, and um, uh, some cheese. I can't remember what I used. I think I, I used Montazio. I think that's what I had. And I threw that all together and I sauteed that all in a pan and um, I stuffed it back into the, um, the shell and I baked it and I put a little cap on. And they were beautiful, and they tasted really different from a regular uh, long zucchini. So now let me ask, do you enjoy um, genetically modified in the right sense of that word, you know, of mixing seeds, or are you a purist? Like, do you say, someone's like, oh, I have some new type of, uh, you know, zucchini that I just invented by crossing these four strains. Are you like, awesome, that has a certain taste to it, or are you like, ah, too much? I... I'm. I have mixed feelings about that. I mean, I certainly have mixed feelings about a lot of these, the corn crossing. Cor- some of the corn I've tasted. That I think corn crossing has been wrecked. Has been, in my opinion, destroyed. Yeah. I corn mean, in general. Interesting. Silver Queen has been. No one's ever said that on. Oh, on the they, show. Oh, they've hybridized God. them to be so sweet. so sweet that they have and the no kernels flavor. are too big. Yeah, has Way anyone preserved big? an older? Yes, strain? yes, yes. You but can they're get, hard to find. Well, you can get um, good vari- old varieties at, at some farmers. A lot of them actually at the green market are, oh, are still really? bringing them in. They're still they're 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 growing them, but oftentimes you do get that overly sweet. Big mushy, uh, and starchy it's just, kernels. It's even me, when it's picked that's that morning, de- that's depressing. That yeah, to me is very depressing, and I feel that that's a real loss. And um, and to me, that doesn't taste like corn. It tastes like it tastes like candy. Yeah, they call it the super sweets. Actually, yeah, yeah exactly. They call them the super. Yeah. Sweets. So, can I ask you a question now? The joy of cooking. You helped write the Italian section. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's a huge responsibility. I, I mean, didn't write how- the whole thing. I mean, you know, there were other people working on it, like Lynn Rosetto Casper, for instance. Ooh, who has Woo! a radio show? Yeah, yeah the splendid. She table. did a lot. Of, she did a lot of it. I did a lot of the vegetable. I did most of the vegetable recipes and and the pasta recipes. How are you fair? towards the myriad of regional and sectional and every hill has a different you know tradition in italy how did you stay democratic in terms of what you chose and so you didn't just choose your favorite but you chose a fair representation of the culture um what i did uh was concentrate on southern italian the southern italian regions because that's what i know and lynn rosetto casper knows the northern regions and the the, her contributions tended to be from the Emilia-Romagna area. Which is what her book, The Splendid Table, right, is exactly. from. Bologna was my favorite city. Yeah. They it's a very interesting little hotbed of culture, even within the hotbed of culture that Italy is. Yeah, well, I... I also it, communist. Yeah, we love the communists. <laughs> um, they certainly have their place in the world. Um, but I, I did a lot of Neapolitan recipes. I did I contributed some you know Sicilian recipes. Uh, they were I pretty much st- um, stuck to things that were t- traditional. I mean I myself when I cook out of my Manhattan apartment, I you know I stay with sort of Southern Italian flavors. But I'm very freewheeling. I'm very for my own cooking. I'm very creative. I'm very I always my cooking. I feel like I always wanted to evolve. I don't want to keep on making eggplant parmesan the way my grandmother did. Yeah, of course I mean, not. it's just boring to me. I mean, I know a lot of people 
I mean, I don't feel an obligation to do that for myself. I feel that I want my food to evolve while still staying true to the spirit of Southern Italian cooking, but the way it's also evolving in Italy. Well, I was going to say, I think it's important to, you know, food, it's not a static, Mm-mm. dead art form. It's something like any other art form. It is constantly evolving and going through yeah. changes as, as equipment or ingredients or lifestyle well, or whatever. New chefs. I mean, yeah. there's in Sicily, for instance, there's a, there are a lot of new chefs there hmm. who are working with Sicilian, you know, local traditional ingredients, but they're putting them together in new ways and making new new flavors. I mean, they're, they're, I would say, things that would be recognizable to the Sicilian palate as being intrinsically Sicilian, but yet they're not, they're traditional. not traditional. They're new. Like what? Like agrodolce, for instance, is a, is a flavor combo that's Sweet often Sweet and sour? Right. Yeah, that's well, a, that's, that's, that's a very, a very Sicilian. traditional Sicilian, um, Sicilian combination. Very that, medieval, too. It, yes, that's right. Yeah. I mean, if you think of uh, a tr- traditional Sicilian things, for example, caponata is a traditional eggplant recipe that's ag- an agrodolce recipe. But I mean, So what's the uh, salty in that? Agrodolce means sweet and sour. Sour. So the sour is the, the eggplant? The sour, no, no. The no, sour vinegar. would be a vinegar. It's usually a vinegar or a wine or a lemon reduced with with something like uh, honey or sugar to create the agrodolce. Um, but I mean, I, in, I had, for instance, in Palermo, a dish where um, uh, caponata was used as a dressing for a, a fish. I think it was a swordfish. And it was rolled. Pesce spada. Yeah, pesce spada. Wow, that sounds great. And it was great. And it was certainly something that a lot of traditional chef... Uh, Cooks in Sicily would probably turn their nose up too, because they, uh, because it's not, it's weird, it's not, a, it's not a combination that a flavor combination that they're used to. Although caponata is traditional and swordfish, uh, which is now a very endangered thing and hard to get there even, um, uh, is also a very traditional Sicilian uh, fish. But you know, putting them together, I mean, it made sense. Out. It worked out. That sounds great to me. It is. It was great. Actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I like swordfish. It's one of the few fish I like. I'm talking about people that take things to new levels. Ferran Adria closed uh-huh. his restaurant right now, so he can open a pizzeria. Well, yeah, he has a whole bunch of. I thought pizza he was chain. opening a cooking school. Yeah, he's opening a school of some sort as well. Oh, really? But he, on the side, he did a bunch of pizza restaurants. Mm. So, I mean, do you embrace that type of cuisine, or do the Italians? I mean. Because Carlo Petrini was like making fun of about the fact going there, and then he came back and was like, "It's the best restaurant." I think in the everybody world. becomes a convert. I mean, it's yeah. it's fun to make fun of you know porcini foam or whatever. You know, it's like, but it's impressive. It's, but yeah, in the end, I mean, the guy really does manufacture some amazing flavors and some really extraordinary yeah. effects. I mean, I would call them special effects. It's sort of like you know the it's chemistry, and he uses you know some very interesting products like Dave Arnold talks about. And you know, uh, oh, Dave Arnold, great show. Cooking hydro- issues. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm up for and any- Wiley oh. Dufresne, WD50, a restaurant that yeah. everyone should go to once mm-hmm. a, a year, at I, least. I'm up for anything that works, basically. I mean, I myself, as a home, <coughs> primarily a home cook and cookbook writer, 
I'm not really involved in foams and things of that nature, but um, and I don't have the you know equipment. Do I really want to get into that? But I'm in, involved. I, I'm I sanction anything that works and tastes good. So let me ask you, what is the state, Erica, of gastronomy? As a science, as an independent science in the United States, like people talk about environmental, is it local? What are mm-hmm. the fossil fuels? But pure gastronomy, taste, a palate, an educated palate, what is the state of it? Carl Petrini says it should be a science like psychology or anthropology, gastronomy. That seems a little, uh, that seems a little, I, I, that a seems a little, a little bit of a stretch to me. I, I he says he uses all those things. It's a, it's part of all those things, psychology. Well, certainly, psychology plays a big factor. I mean, you know, you need, you you need only read Proust. <laughs> oh Jesus! <laughs> all seventy five hundred pages. <laughs> or just just go that. to the food references. Yeah, right. I mean, but you know, I mean, psychology certainly plays a huge role, and I notice that everybody has you know their favorite grandmother's recipe, and this means comfort or whatever. I mean, it's so cliched. It's like boring. Well, Erica's talking so, about gastronomy. She's wanna, saying it's about taste. It's about my palate. It's about that's gastronomy as a science. That's not an opinion because yeah. there's truth and there is right and wrong. If a cheese is, but I think everybody's bad, experience has something to do with how they. Exp- I mean, everyone's back experiences right. have an impact on how they experience a flavor or a texture in the moment. That's right. But I disagree a little bit. There's someone said Joe Girardi did not pinch run for David Ortiz and he got thrown out at second base and then uh, some guy, Tim McCarver who does the sports for Fox said, no manager in the major leagues would have pinch run for him. So he was defending Joe Girardi and I think that the same applies to certain foods. No critic of any salt would say that a certain cheese is good if it's not. So there is opinion, but there's also truth. A crappy wine is a crappy wine. Just because some guy somewhere says it's a good wine means nothing. I know, but look at it this way. A grilled cheese sandwich and canned tomato soup can sometimes be the best thing you ever tasted, depending on what your memories are and whether or not you're just particularly... Like when you crave a particular food or flavor, it's usually because it's associated with some memory. I'm over canned tomato soup, I have to say. Well, yeah, me too. But I mean, I'm just saying but that. But there are but right something, you know what I mean? It is crappy. It's it's not good. Well, and yet sometimes it's a really delicious thing. But or I it's think just the grilled really cheese satisfying. can be done well or bad. You might personally love something that's bad, but you're like, this is bad. But my I love favorite it. grilled cheese is potato bread with Kraft American slices. That's, that is my favorite. Okay, that sounds great. That's okay. disgusting, well, that's but it point. is totally fabulous. My, I think. My opinion about this is that if I create something in my kitchen that I'm happy with and I feel like the flavors are right to me and the dish looks right and it feels right and the people I serve it to like it, that's that's where I'm at with, with, with gastronomy. I mean, that to me is the most important so thing. So it's pure opinion. It, to me, it's my palate. And therefore could never be a science. Uh, yes, I guess that's possibly the way I look at it. I never thought of it as a science. I mean, it's certainly cooking is is a science, but, you know, I've been cooking for so long, I've sort of lost, you know, I don't think about what I'm actually doing in the pan anymore because it's just natural what happens, 
you know, chemically to foods as you cook them. I mean, I know what happens, but I'm certainly not thinking about it that way. I'm thinking about, you know, memories and flavor memories, as Katie said, and how I can translate them into what I'm cooking now mm -hmm. and make them different, make them new, make me happy and keep me from, you know, keep me excited about my cooking, not yeah. get bored. Um, yeah, because when you say it should be a science, then you're implying that there is some way to quantify the exact balance between sweet and salty, sour and umami. I mean, that was sort of the way the Japanese break flavors down right. into those things, and they try to create a dish that embraces all of those flavors, and yes. that to them is the perfect dish. And they are the most and sophisticated is, cuisine in I mean, the I world. I suppose there's some science to that, but I don't know of anybody in the culinary field who is actually writing a recipe knowing that if I put in one tablespoon of this and one teaspoon of that, that I am going to necessarily create an exact you know, flavor that that is going to be scientifically replicable. Well, True. a recipe is only a, it's a, a guideline. A, a guideline. You know, you're only gonna you're never gonna get the same taste twice from a recipe. It because depends food on is mutable. It depends on your ingredients. Yeah. On I mean, the if, air pressure. It, it depends. It, does. it depends on <laughs> moisture in the air. I'm serious. Well, then though. Neapolitans would tell you their pizzas are partially water and air pressure and all those yeah. things. No question about it. And terroir. I mean, you can never discount like even the way flour. Tastes how dare you forget marijuana? <laughs> which, which is what exactly? It's that would terroir be of the seafood. mare. Oh, oh marijuana. Okay. Well, but that, I mean, I was, you, oysters I are the perfect example of marijuana, right? I well, mean, I do think that if someone has tasted 500 cheeses, or not, that, 500 is the wrong word, 50,000 cheeses. <laughs> They know better. I mean, I mean, Ann Saxelby or Steve mm -hmm. Jenkins. Yeah, he will say you might think that this cheese is good. Well, let me tell you, you're wrong. And I'd be like, most of the American stances. How dare you tell me I'm wrong? But it's not a good cheese. You might like it, but it's not one of the great cheeses. And well, I think that's okay. That is okay, and and that's that's the reason why the, the longer and I don't know that it's an opinion of his either. I think most other cheese people would agree. Right. But the longer a person cooks, and the, the longer people a, a cook puts flavors together in his or her own kitchen or a restaurant, um, the more it becomes an art to that chef. And I feel like I I would say that I don't want to sound pretentious, but I feel like cooking for me is more of an art than a science. Yes, I would agree. Wow, wow. And I Jesus, think that anybody, I mean, even Farron Audria. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, yeah, I but even Farron Audria, with all of his scientific equipment and his crazy experiments, ultimately he he's is after taste. I mean, he, he's not going to put something out that's that that doesn't please him. That's right, and he's he's bringing an his particular art. Of the palate to that product, despite all of the scientific um, additions that he makes to playing with its texture or its flavor or its form. All I'm saying is I go to certain restaurants and I'm like, you have to, I, I want to bring, go to the chef and say, you have to, I'm going to take you to 10 other restaurants and we're going to try a pasta. And you tell me at the end if you're still going to serve that pasta. Mm. And I think that they wouldn't. I think honestly they wouldn't. They would say those ten pastas were 
literal taste epiphanies. And the thing I've been putting out there has been mediocre at best. Well, you know, it, the truth is that a lot of people, even chefs, don't have sophisticated palates. Right, they haven't ha- tasted enough. They have not experienced enough. Yeah, and you a really... two-week stint in Italy does not mean that... You know, I learned this at Slow Food when we tried to organize cheese. The people who had... The people, the panel of experts that we should have had to select the cheeses that were representing America in Italy at the biggest cheese event in the world should have been people that has collectively had spent 30 years, 40 years only tasting cheese. That's yeah. a good panel. Not someone who likes the farmer from the thing and says, oh, you know, he's within 50 miles of me. That has nothing to do. And I, I don't know. I still like to think that Carlo is right, that gastronomy is has certain truths. Maybe not like uh, psychology or physics, but, you know, that there are certain truths. Taste truths, opinion or not. There are taste, taste truths, certainly. Um, I mean... Uh, an amazing piece of Parmigiano Reggiano is an amazing taste. And if you've yeah. never really tasted that, you don't really have anything to compare compare it to, and you really can't develop your palate. These are cheese people who've told me this. Parmigiano Reggiano is the best cheese in the world. If you disagree with that, you're wrong. And that sounds crazy. People don't want to say that. But I've yet to meet a cheese expert who's really well-known and respected in the industry who would not agree with that. They might say they personally have one they like almost as much. But that is almost beyond arguable. You know, I have to say... um, I would agree with you there. You know, I have to say, as a... a, I would say pretty much an expert in Southern Italian cooking. I mean, um, aside from... You know mozzarella and some things, other a couple of things down there. The cheeses are not that good. <laughs> Where in southern Italy, I've mm-hmm. tasted a lot of very. What are they mostly hard cheeses? They have a lot of different types of cheeses, and oftentimes the uh, a lot of the cacciacavallo cheeses I've found to be of these are even small artisanal cheeses, overly salty. Um, just not pleasing to me. Um, and when I compare them, I mean, it, you can't really compare like a southern Italian cheese to a northern Italian cheese, obviously. But, you know, if, if a cheese to me is unpleasant, no matter how, you know, how local cute it is. that little and, rustic yeah, person is. Yeah, <laughs> that little old man who's making yeah. it. If it's, if it's, it doesn't have a good texture and it's, and it is overly salty or it has yeah. like... Piece, you know, I've tasted cheeses down there, pecorinos that have had been unevenly salted and um, odd, just odd. Yeah, and off. And all, yes, they're and, off. That's okay to say that cheese is off. I mean, there are great cheeses down there, um, but you know, I've also tasted. It's some not milk. a rule. Yeah. No. Yeah. Right. No. It's true. Not every artisan, however much they strive, is going to produce a great cheese. Right. No question Yeah, just about like you that. want to be a great baseball player, that doesn't mean yeah. you get to or play in the major painter. leagues. Yeah. yeah. Or a right. great chef. Yeah. That's yeah. right. I mean, let's face it. Most restaurants are bad. Speaking of salt. Most restaurants are not great food. Most. I would agree. Some Spe- are great. Speaking of salt, I have to. Ha- I have a really big issue with mark kolansky well i no 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 i that was that that book was fine um but i i believe that 
in Manhattan right now, I believe that about 40% of the chefs are over-salting their food. And I find this to be something that drives me absolutely insane. And I don't want to pay for that food. I'm talking really? about too yeah. much salt. I always complain that they don't put the salt shakers on the tables because I want more salt. So you think the opposite? Uh, too I, much salt. Uh, too huh? much salt. I I believe that a lot of chefs that are maybe are are not quite sure of themselves will oversalt food just. To get to be a, safe, to, a to get a rise out of the, of the person's mm-hmm. pa- the, well, yeah, the eater's they're, palate, they're worried that they're not going to come across with any other flavors, right? And and as long as somebody eats this and says, "Wow, this really is tasty," you know, it says, "I can really taste this," or it's like you know, a chef that puts twenty thousand pounds of butter in mashed potatoes. I mean, it's like, "Wow, these mashed potatoes are amazing," but. To me, that's not mashed potatoes. I mean, I find that sort of repulsive. Mm -hmm. And I think that chefs who rely on butter and too much salt um, are... Are, are not doing themselves any favors because they're not learning because they're not tasting anything they're not tasting what they're making they're tasting salt and mm-hmm. they they want to get a big reaction out of out of their um, their diners and they will well we have uh, four more minutes uh, with you Erica and then we want you to stay on because we're gonna have Gwen talk about the uh, Brooklyn Grange and by the way she is I saw her She's just been run walking inside around. I know we need to go and fetch her top three food movies of all time um, and, and 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 you and you know well Babette's you've been around feast. since the dawn of cinema uh, Katie oh, so long before you'll be a long good... before talkies oh well I uh, Babette's feast number three I would say I mean, I don't know that I've seen... Babette's Feast, to me, is is one of the best. Okay. Tampopo. Yes. I loved that Grand movie. Bouffe. Oh, yeah. is that where someone eats themselves to death? Oh, sure. Yeah. It's fabulous. Yeah, that was great. Uh, was eat, th- drink, man, woman. Those I Asian... Didn't, you didn't like that as much? I didn't like that as oh, much. Oh, I loved that. Mm. What about... What was that one? It was called, like... The butler, his maid, the wardrobe. Oh, the cook, the thief, his wife, and her yes. lover. Whoa, oh, that was hot. Helen Mirren, ow, oh. in the walk-in. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was a very good. And you know, that was funky. It's very interesting because um, you know the walk-in was a good place for sex. I mean, I worked at at Florent Restaurant for, for many years. Did and there you? Was, yes, yeah. and there was. There was a lot of lot going on in there, and I never really understood it because it seems so goddamn cold, and I'm thinking, what is the draw? But I guess it was private. Well, except for when you were going in to get your butter, your eggs, or your whatever. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I'll just avert my eyes Sorry. here. <laughs> I just saw not only the butt of a lamb, but the butt of a boy. <laughs> We actually, part of the New York City Food Film Festival, had um, honor a Florent. documentary on Florent yeah. um, by this guy, David Siegel. It was really excellent. It was a wonderful film. And um, after they screened the film, it was a world premiere. They had this outrageous party. This is in the Metropolitan P- Pavilion, which sadly mm. I was not able to attend. And um, I understand that the floor show had to be seen to be believed. It was uh, much of that sort of activity that was once uh, sequestered in the walk-in was right out there well, on stage. Well, the floor show at the restaurant every night was... Yeah, was, and they had was, a lot of those performers. Penny Arcade was there, a lot of the people. I always thought that would be a great tasting. 
you know, uh, that there could be sexual tastings, you know, and then and, and, and blind experiences in that realm and uh you know experience you mean like sperm crustini or something no just where people would like <laughs> yes like tasting various sperm and saying what country and well, you, age you, this donor you don't came know from. unless you have the experience like we're talking about cheese with a lot of sperm you know to know what is really the good sperm and what is really the you know inferior qual- you know if you're really looking for quality you That's really right. you have gotta to try like, a lot you have to really educate your palate well, yeah and also to like uh, i don't want to be you know vulgar for the radio but I like to, a blind vulgar. tasting of you know going down on someone and saying you know this person is from brazil too 17 salty. year old too salty <laughs> I think that'd be a really interesting thing. We could find out. Uh, you know, I'm sure Brandon would do very well in that. He would know uh, a lot of different things. No, but it'd be an interesting thing, kind of <laughs> sex tasting. Jack is like faint. The boys are fainting. Oh, brother. Well, let's let us welcome our next guest here because we we have just a few minutes left. And um, and lucky Gwen Chance from the Brooklyn Sorry. Grange or bad chance just came in on that on the, on the tail end of that. I'm sorry. Her jaw's still on the floor. <laughs> Never well, know what to expect. Here well, what do you Radio. have for them to taste out in the? Because you guys are running a little farmers market out it's there. Beautiful! I was just out there. Yeah. absolutely gorgeous. Thank Fresh you. Stuff. Yeah, so, we're running our Sunday farm stand today. We're at Roberta's in Brooklyn every weekend, every Sunday. Um, we've got fresh vegetables from our organic one-acre vegetable farm up in Queens, uh, called Brooklyn Grange. And largest uh, rooftop farm in the world, probably, right? Yeah, you know, we're trying to figure that out. We've I'm actually sure we sent out a few emails lately asking some experts what they think, and if nobody to, knows. Yeah. Nobody, if you have they, to they send out emails to ask, yeah. you are, or well, you're we allowed don't to go say. around declaring ourselves the biggest farm, but declare it, and then oh, when you find someone else, you'll change yeah. your view. If you somebody know? else comes in and says, "No, we are," then you can all say, right. "Well, all right, fine." Also, because you know, there's not that many places. Where roofs need to be built on. Like I was talking to my friend in Oakland. He was like, we have so much empty space here. We don't need rooftop farms. So you can already eliminate every place that's spacious. You're talking about a few different cities, basically. Well, it's because nobody Mm -hmm. wants to develop in Oakland. I actually have a question about rooftop (laughs) farming for you. Can you do rooftop farming on any roof? No. No. Uh, we're, We're dealing with about... 45, 50 pounds uh, per square feet Right. Uh, when the soil is fully saturated. So you do need a pretty solid roof. The roof that we're on is it's on an old industrial building, and it um, it's about an 8-inch poured concrete roof, so it's really solid. Um, a lot of the buildings you see today being built are not nearly strong enough. So you're really looking for these kind of mm-hmm. pre-war industrial buildings. Interesting. Yeah. So, what are you guys growing up there that you're selling in the farmers market? Yeah. Now? What's a, what can we, what can what someone can, come people and can buy? People come to two sixty one Moore Street, Roberta's restaurant. Are you two sixty one or are you two sixty three? let's say two sixty one and a half. half okay. Yeah, because we're kind of in the lot between those two buildings. Um, but yeah, it's basically beautiful Roberta's. Swiss chard. I like how you yes, kept the we number. We have beautiful odd. Swiss chard. We have I rainbow Swiss it. chard. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't want to cross the street. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're on the odd Good, side smart. of the street. She's a true New Yorker. Um, yeah, so you can hop off the Morgan stop here in Brooklyn and find our farm stand, which uh, is featuring today uh, baby fennel and carrots. Ooh. We have Swiss chard and kale and a ton of different salad greens 
and head lettuces. Um, we're just starting to get some heirloom tomatoes ripe. Uh, we've already sold out. I think we sold out of them in like the first half hour. Someone um, came and bought like two pounds. Or yeah, and that was it. <laughs> That's all we've got. We've got a ton. It's so frustrating. We've got a ton of tomatoes up there, but they're all green still. It's um, not their season yet, right? Yeah, That's yeah more it's another August. week or it's two. It's kind of early, and I think I've heard that tomatoes require a few cool nights to ripen. Oh. Something about like the sugars or Which something Which we have not like had. Has yeah, and heat, we have not had that at all. Has the heat been rough on lettuces this year? Yeah, it, it makes them a little bitter, yeah. and it uh, it makes them wilty at the market. So we, yeah. we've got an ice chest out there where yeah. we keep them. Um, but yeah, we've got a ton of herbs, and, and the heat really isn't that big of a deal. We've... We've grown everything pretty successfully this year. And I was actually very lucky. I'm, uh, I was very lucky to get a delivery only because um, Ann and I live right next to a delivery that was being made. And I saw one of your mentees come and make the delivery. Uh, you have brought on some students from various schools. And it's awesome to see them months and months into the project still mm-hmm. loving it, still giving their time to it. And uh I forget her name, but she came. Uh, she came and delivered it. And tell us a little bit about uh, the workforce that you've. Uh, yeah, we have quite a workforce. We. Um, in fact, you just took a picture, right? Like a big picture of the everyone who contributed. I think we're going to do that this week. Actually, okay. we want. We really do want to uh, take note of all the fact that so many people have come out to help us. So many volunteers. Uh, we've. I would say with confidence that we've probably had about 150 to 200 different volunteers come that so far. That's amazing. Yeah, That's and we're lot. only halfway through the season. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we've had an amazing amount of help from the community, and we do have a few students. Uh, there's one student from Brooklyn College and one from the New School, and they're both studying kind of sustainability and urban design, and they've come out and done an amazing amount of work for us. And, yeah, we have some apprentices, too, who are out of college, but they're interested in learning more about farming. And one of them has basically turned into a head farmer, um, huh. Rob. Rob is, is our Uber, Uber apprentice. apprentice. Um, he's becoming he, a master. He's really a master. And he's kind of coming out of nowhere. He has very little farming experience, but he just dove in head on. And he, uh, yeah, he's been out there six days a week. Mm-hmm. He's wow. there from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day. Oh, my God. What a trooper. I I'm know, such a fan of this. I mean, everything I was saying before, like, I love, you know, Blue Hill, great. Rockefeller, that's awesome that you gave $50 billion to start a farm. But in terms of that vigilante energy, I mean, holy cow. This stuff, I mean, and didn't Chris have to go to court or something <laughs> to deal with the fact that you guys yeah. are so trendsetting? Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good way to put it. Patrick. Well, I think what you said like when you came on a few weeks ago was that they had they hadn't really figured out the permit How to deal language. With you. Like they didn't even have the language to deal with. Yeah, what we're you just were kind doing. of setting Normal. a precedent. Yeah, containers. Exactly. Yeah, and the crane. We were dealing with this crane company who's been amazing, and they they helped us out in a huge way. Um, and we actually got a violation because. One day we didn't have, we needed like one more crane guy there, but they were trying to save us money by not having Oh dear. It was like totally our fault. So yeah, Chris, one of our partners, Chris, just uh, went to court the other day to deal with that. So we did get slapped with a bit of a fine from the city. But yeah, I mean, you see these, these nonprofits doing great work and they pour a bunch of money into starting a farm or a community garden and it's great, but 
we oh. have done this so budget. It's been so low cost. Yeah. Considering and you have what we've done. volunteers. It is the action. Yeah. And it's all about matters. the freelancer. Are you making profits now? Because I know this is a for profit entity. Yeah, this it's is a not for profit. We are not we are nowhere near to paying off our initial costs. Uh, it's a five year return. So uh-huh. they, they, give us a few more a years to make profit. Pounds of soil to a roof and paid a crane guy four thousand dollars a day i mean not yet but you know that's the big problem is that people shareholders are expecting quarterly returns so everyone overperforms in lies basically bold face lies to show profits on a per quarter basis to appease their shareholders when in reality some things take two three years yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely well i think just a five-year return that seems like a very reasonable I mean, considering that farming is, you can't, how much can you charge actually for a bunch of, you know, you know, we probably could be charging more. Like you go out to our farm stand right now, you're Uh going to get a bunch of beets for $3. These are pretty competitive prices. You go to any farmer's market in the city and organic farmers are charging at least that much. At least. Uh So we're really, we're trying to keep the prices as low as possible. And for, and the reason is that we really want to get the vegetables out there into the community. We don't want to exclude anyone with this food. And we've actually just submitted our application for um, accepting EBT and food stamps. Oh, great. That's so wonderful. it's, it's going to take a while, unfortunately. It's a pretty slow process. Um, and I'd like to say you can get a bib salad here at Roberta's and a margarita pizza for less than the cost of going to the movies. Oh, for sure. So, I mean, just this and idea. And there's air conditioning here. Yeah. And there's AC. <laughs> we need some movies. No, it's true. I mean, uh, this uh, this self-deprecating, oh, we are elitist, you know, let us, you know, flagellate ourselves before, you know, we even are successful is ridiculous. Food's very competitive. And last time I checked, I went to McDonald's. It costs eight bucks to eat there. So that, really? that ain't that cheap. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can get a pizza here for that much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. seven, actually. And Chipotles. Chipotle. Which my daughter Chipotles. loves. Yeah. <laughs> Is that your baby Chipotle. talk for Chipotle? Yeah, for Are Chipotle, you going I out mean, with the founder or something? Yeah. <laughs> I wish, honey. Take out your Chipotle. Yeah, anybody got his own? <laughs> Patrick, Patrick, you are out of you hand today. Re- he is totally. Somebody spiked his Wheaties, man. <laughs> I ran today. I'm all oh, like is that what it adrenaline. Is? All those endorphins, up. man. Yeah, because we've been. Very I'm going to go back into the producer room on my way out, and Jack and that are going to be. Like, yeah, we're they're going to execute you. <laughs> well, this has been an interesting show. I think we should wrap this up. Yeah. I'm starving. And, well, we're uh, going to take a little break now. We have next week. I'm gone. The week next after week gone. you're gone. No, a week after I'm here. And then I'm gone. For the whole month. Yes. So we're going to have some different co-hosts. We're going to have Matt from Belcourt. We're going to have Shauna from Back yeah. 40. Great chefs. Uh, and then we're going to come back in September we'll back with a whole Labor new Day roster. With, like an amazing, amazing group of guests. And hopefully, you know, some group like a National Public Radio or or, 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 or some, Public Radio International. Or some satellite group will realize flat out unconditional no opinion this is the best food radio in the country and i know because it's all the other ones are kind of crappy they're kind of good but they're kind of outdated well, there's nothing wrong with what them we're doing but they're not roberta's they're not here they're not with this generation they're not bringing on six eight people per show that are fascinating we deserve a voice and um you know hopefully uh, the new fall season will you know give us that platform well we're gonna rock the fall season and in the meantime uh let's one one more time people can listen to our show 
and archives uh, as a podcaster and RSS feed. And today we discussed hydrofracking, otherwise known as hydraulic um, fracturing. And in upstate New York and across the Marcellus Shale Fields, a really interesting uh, set of issues that uh, have an impact on our agriculture, on the New York City watershed, and on a way of life in upstate New York particularly, but also throughout Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and West Virginia. So um, thanks to our guests from the American Farmland Trust, David Haight, and Wes Gillingham from Catskill Mountain Keeper. Thanks um, to Sam Edwards for sponsoring Thanks to Sam Edwards for sponsoring our, our show. Thank you to Erica DeMaine for coming in and giving us a philosophical... Uh, <laughs> You're, You're a great guest. I know, it's Thank great you. to you have, have you. You should have your own show. Really fun. Yeah. Recipes or something. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And thanks, Gwen, for coming in and updating us on the Brooklyn Grange. So remember, folks, Sunday afternoons or Sundays at Roberta's, come in and buy some fresh produce. Thanks, Jack, for producing. Thanks, Nat, for engineering. See you next week. (laughs) 